Now, I must say, uh, one, Donna and the other ladies that helped, I, I always think you guys do a great job. I think you have gone above and beyond this year. This is beautiful. I love it. I love the slideshow. Thank you all so much for your hard work and your willingness to serve a church in that way. So good job. I'm very, very excited about that. I look forward to going around and checking out all these pictures that are all over these beautiful trees. Everyone there, Matthew chapter 11. So as most of you know, we wrapped up our study of the book of Ecclesiastes last week. That study took a little over three months, and it took a look at just about every possible thing in this world where you might be able to get your identity from or where you might look to for your happiness and joy. And during that time, Solomon was constantly pointing out that our pursuit of things, whatever those things may be, anything that falls under the sun is a waste of our time because those things can never ultimately satisfy. Those things can never ultimately fulfill our lives. So as we go through our pursuit of things like power and prestige, uh, if we're striving to accumulate wealth and, or striving for wisdom, uh, anything like that, it only leads to our disappointment because at some point we're going to realize that none of that stuff will fulfill us. It might make things a little bit easier in this life. It might make things a little bit more convenient. But at the end of the day, none of these things will bring us ultimate joy, ultimate pleasure, ultimate happiness. Um, but let's say that the pursuit of these things don't consume our lives. Right? What if we spent the majority of our lives in a pursuit of a direct and loving and working relationship with Christ? What if we spent most of our efforts in life prioritizing knowing Jesus and making Jesus known? What if that was what we were known for? What if that's what people talked about us at our death? They had this to say about us. Right? If pursuit of the world leads to futility, then pursuit of any reality beyond the sun, anything other than what's in this world, i.e. the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of God, the pursuit of God's kingdom, if we're giving everything that we have in our life to pursuing these things, then you would think the opposite would happen to us. We would find purpose, we would find fulfillment, and we would find never-ending joy, right? And does that make sense? That's, that's a good theory. It's a good theory, but that's not always how life works out, right? right? Those who devote themselves to the kingdom of God, they almost always find themselves with this giant spiritual target on their back that brings in this focus of spiritual warfare. They become moving targets for our enemy. And there are times when that spiritual battle rages so difficultly in their life that it becomes hard to see our purpose. There are times when it becomes difficult to experience fulfillment in our efforts. There's times when it becomes difficult to access the joy of the Lord because the weight of the world is weighing so heavily on us. There are times when it becomes difficult to remember the truth about who God is and who we are in Him. And in these moments when we find ourselves under this kind of pressure, it can be difficult to have hope. 
It can be difficult to find hope. We lose hope in the, that the promises of God are true. We lose hope that Jesus really is who the Bible says He is. Right? We lose hope that the sacrifices that we are called to endure are really worth it. And this is the situation that John the Baptist finds himself in in Matthew chapter 11. John has landed himself in jail due to the fact that he rebuked King Herod, he, he divorced his wife, and then he married his niece, Herodias, who had once been Herod's brother's wife. All right, this is some crazy, incestuous nonsense here that's going on. Herod's brother was still alive at the time. And not that that would make the situation any better, but there is a little bit more freedom if the, his brother had died. Uh, but it just adds an extra element of trouble to this twisted up incestuous mess that violated God's laws about marriage in multiple ways. I mean, we don't even have time to get into all the ways that this violates God's law about marriage. Uh, but because John spoke out about that to the king, the king threw him in prison. While in prison, John begins to have doubts about what he knows to be true. He begins to wonder, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is my life of struggle, is my life of difficulty worth what I'm experiencing now for everything that I've poured out for God in the process of, of living? Or should I have waited for someone else? And now this, this kind of doubt, this kind of uh, loss of hope is normal when most Christians experience problems like this. I mean, most of us have this ability to stand strong for a little while, right? Kind of like Job, right? I don't know if you know the first part of the book of Job. There, after he's lost his wealth, after he's lost his children, uh, he stands there and he rips his, his shirt and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? That mindset is fantastic. But if we're honest, that's easier to say at the beginning of pain and suffering when it hasn't gone on forever. When we're not dealing with the first year of it, the second year of it, the third year of it. When the pressure keeps growing and growing and becoming more and more intense, it's easier to say at the beginning than when it has grown so much because eventually if we have enough pressure on us, we all tend to turn into the Job that we see later in the book who begins to uh, seek answers to why this is happening. Why would the Lord do this to me? Obviously the Lord has made a mistake. I would like to plead my case before the Lord. What, why are you doing this to me? You have done me wrong. But John the Baptist isn't like most of us. I mean, I don't know if you know his story from Scripture, but John's birth was prophesied about 700 years before he was actually born. We find that in the book of Isaiah, verse, uh, chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. It says, A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted, and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 700 years before his birth, John was foretold that he would come and he would pave the way for the, for the Messiah. His birth 
was miraculous. Like we always talk about the virgin birth of Jesus, but we rarely ever speak about the miraculous birth of John. Luke 1 tells us that John was born to elderly parents who had never been able to have children up until this point. And then suddenly an angel shows up and announces that he would be conceived. And this is, this is what is said about John, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. He was born filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't know how much you understand about how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of, of people, but if you ever hear someone say, I've been a Christian since I was born, that's simply not true. We're not, we're not typically born with this Spirit of God residing in us. For 99.9999% of us, we have to come to faith in Christ, then the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. John is literally the only person that can say that he has been a Christian from birth. It says that he was given the Spirit and the power of the prophet Elijah in order to turn people's hearts towards Christ. So when he spoke, people listened. When he spoke, it pricked their heart and it turned their eyes to their own sin and to the realities of who Christ was. And he lived a rugged, simple lifestyle in the desert. It says that he wore camel's hair and he would eat locusts and wild honey as a way to be devoted to the Lord. He had devoted his life to honoring God. He devoted his life to pursuit of God's kingdom. To lay the way for Christ. And when it came to Jesus, we're shown throughout this process that John knows who Jesus is. When John sees Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, it says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Now, John was born first. And in this society, the firstborn, if you were older than someone else, you automatically had authority over those who were younger than you. And yet John says, this one existed before I did, even though he was born after me. He says he is the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. He knew that the Messiah was going to come and be the perfect sacrifice that we need in order to have a relationship with the Father. He knew this. When Jesus asked John to baptize him in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 and 17, this is what happened. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? And Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So here we have a man whose birth was foretold by a prophet 700 years before he was born. We have someone whose pending birth was announced by an angel. 
He was filled from birth by the Holy Spirit and he proved that he knew who Jesus was from the start. And then after all of that is said and done, after baptizing Jesus, he witnesses the heavens open up. He sees the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove and then hears an audible voice of God saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. John knew who Christ was. And yet, when life became overwhelming for John, he began to wonder if Jesus really was the Messiah. John began to lose hope. And we, when he began to lose hope, he sought Jesus for the truth. And that's what we see in Matthew 11, 1-15. It helps us understand how we can hold on to hope when desperate times enter our lives. Let's take a look at that together. Matthew 11, 1 to 15 says, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. So after this long life of serving the Lord, being filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, difficulties hit, and suddenly John begins to waver. He says, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Or, are you, or, or should we be expecting someone else? Are you the guy? Are you really the guy? And I think if, if we're honest with ourselves, we can all admit to having questions like this when our lives become hard. Sometimes it's difficult for us to balance our understanding of who God is with the realities of existing in a sin-cursed world. Right? So like, we experience pain. And we think, wow, this hurts. I am in physical pain. Right? My body aches, my back hurts, my knees hurt. We have to have hip surgery and we have to have you know, cancer removed and we have to have all sorts of procedures just so that we don't fall apart at any given moment. We have physical pain, it hurts. I'm in emotional pain. I've, I've been lied about. I've been, uh, promises have been broken to me. Loved ones are gone. This hurts. We're in spiritual pain. Sometimes God seems far away. Sometimes we are walking through a desert and we don't understand why. And yet, through all of that, if you 
Stay in church long enough. If it's a Bible-believing and teaching church, you're going to hear that God is sovereign. You're going to hear that God is all-powerful. He's all-present. He's all-knowing. He's all-loving. And yet, here I am struggling with as much pain as I have ever experienced in my entire life. How can both of these things be true? So maybe one of those things isn't true. This is one of the biggest, hardest questions that we will ever have to answer about our faith. If God is all-knowing and all-loving and all-powerful, then why is there so much pain in the world? It's called the problem of evil. And it gets presented to believers all the time. How can both of these things be true? These are good questions that people should be asking. There are other truths that we need to keep in consideration God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. He is all-loving. And, and we do experience a broken and sin-cursed world. They're both true at the same time. And one of the things that we need to remember always is that God knows what's best for us. He knows what we need. Right? We are constantly telling Him what we want. But God is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present and all-loving, so He knows what we need. Right, Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. So it's not like the Bible doesn't acknowledge that life is hard. Right, the Apostle Paul had one of the craziest ministries I've ever heard of in my entire life. And, and he acknowledges this is hard. It's difficult. He says, though, that the suffering that you experience in this age is not worth comparing to the glory that waits you in the next. And then it continues on in verse 26 to 30. He says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses because we do not pray as we should. We don't know what to pray for. Again, we go with what we want and God says, this is what He needs. This is what she needs. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings, and He also searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is going before God the Father on your behalf, knowing what you need, knowing God's will for your life. He is praying what you would pray if you knew what God knows. It continues there. It says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those who He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Every pain that we experience is meant for our good. And that good is becoming more and more like the image of Christ. The pain itself is not good. The suffering that we experience is not good. That physical pain, the emotional pain, the spiritual pain, that is not good. It's like going to the doctor and getting a shot. The shot is not good. That hurts. It's what's in the shot that is good. And we must experience the pain before we can get better from what the shot has done for us. God uses every trial that we experience to form us more and more into the image of Christ. And we also need to remember that God is sovereign. He has a plan. 
All of this is falling into place just as he wants it to. And it's not out of control. It seems out of control to us, but that's because we don't have any control. Any illusion that you might have, that you have the ability to make huge impacts on your life, just let a spark happen in your house and see how much control you have. Let a driver that's had too much to drink on your way home from a game show you how much control you have. Let one phone call from the doctor about that scan that you had show you how much control you have over your life. You don't have any control. God has all control. He has a plan. But the problem is we can't understand Him because we are not eternal. So asking why these things happen rarely works well for us because even if God explained it, we probably wouldn't understand. We can't grasp the mind of the eternal. But we need to remember that He is sovereign and that He has a plan and we should trust Him because He is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, all-loving. So this pain has purpose. Another thing that we should remember If you ever doubt God's love for you, God's love for you was proven at the cross. Proven at the cross. Look, we are not owed anything in this life except condemnation and wrath, period. Because of our rebellion against the sovereign king of the universe, we deserve to be obliterated. And that's it. It's the only thing that we are owed. God doesn't have to prove anything about Himself to us. He doesn't owe us an explanation for anything. He doesn't owe us prosperity or health or well-being. He owes us nothing. And yet, He still responded to His people with compassion and love when we rebelled against Him. I've never, I've never seen this before. I don't know why it never clicked to me. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have fallen into sin, the first thing he does before he ever doles out punishment is promises the coming Messiah to make it all right. Go back and look. I had never seen that before. I saw it in an Advent devotional this year. Charles Spurgeon pointed out to me that before the punishment was ever put out there, God had already made a promise for it to to make it better. Now He showed His love for you in the cross. He showed His grace and His mercy and His compassion on us through what Christ experienced on the cross. John 3, 16-17 says, For God so loved the world in this way, He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So Jesus would have been well within His rights as God to come down hard on John for this question. He could have had a similar conversation that God the Father had with Job in the last four chapters of that book. Who are you to question me? Where were you when I established the foundations of the world? That could have been the conversation. Who are you to question me? But that's not what we see Jesus do. How does Jesus respond to John's doubts? He tells the disciples, he says, report this back to John. Give him this report. The blind receive their sight. 
The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. So why, why would Jesus say this to John instead of just simply answering the question? Now, why didn't he say, uh, yes, John, of course, I'm the one that you have been waiting for. You know this. You have known it for literally your entire life. Instead of telling John to trust his own eyes, instead of telling John to trust his own experiences with Jesus, Jesus has his disciples go back to him and he points him back to the word of God. He says, don't trust your eyes. Don't trust your experience. Go back to the truth. What Jesus quotes here to John's disciples comes from Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 10. That passage says, Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool and the thirsty land springs and the haunt of jackals in their lairs there will be grass, reeds, and papyrus. A road will be there in a way and it will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion there. No vicious beast will go upon it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee. This is the promise that God, Jesus pointed John back to. This is what Jesus said, hey, remember this. In your moment of hardship and trial, in the desperate evenings of the night when you just wonder whether God still loves you, still cares, Jesus gently points John back to God's Word. He's saying, do you remember these promises that God said He would fulfill through His Messiah? Do you remember all those promises? He says, these things are happening through me. I know it's been a difficult hand that you have been dealt in the process of ministering in my name, but that doesn't change anything about who I am. The Father's promise to Adam and Eve was true in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That was where we first see it. First promise of the Messiah. It was true in Genesis 3, 15. The promise was true in Isaiah 35. And it's still true with you behind bars facing execution. None of these situations changes the truth of God's Word. So, have you lost hope due to despair? Have you lost hope and have nowhere to turn? You don't know what to do with your life because it's so difficult, so hard. Jesus wants us to turn back to Scripture. Paul agrees in his letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 uh, through chapter 4, verse 5. He says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is the, going to judge the living and the dead, and because of His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So when life is going out of control, cling to the promises that are found in Scripture. Don't trust your eyes. Don't trust your ears. Don't trust your heart. Trust what you know to be true that we found in God's Word. And that doesn't give you enough hope in your struggles. If that doesn't, then look at the affection that John has, was given by Christ uh, as he was struggling with these doubts. In verse 11, Jesus tells those around him that among those uh, born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. None has ever appeared. Right here, he's, Jesus is faced with this uncertainty, this, like, I don't know if I trust you anymore. He, he sees deep down right, that John is suffering and he knows that he's just dust. We talked about that as we were going through the book of Ecclesiastes. God understands what we are made of. And being made of dust is not a compliment. It's a sign of weakness. It's a sign of struggle. And he understands. He knows he's dust and Jesus shows compassion on him. He says, remember the promises of God, John. He says, remember who I am. And then he shares an interesting point. After saying that there is no one greater who has ever been born of a woman other than John, what does he say? He says, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. So you can be the greatest human being the world has ever known. Right? You can be the next most righteous. You can be the next nearest to holiness. The next most generous and the second most Christ-like person in the world. And Jesus says the lowest person in the kingdom of God is greater than you. I mean, it just goes to show that everything that we do in this life does not necessarily have bearing on what's the most important in the next. Right? When we pursue after the things of the kingdom, when we pursue after the things of God, even the fact that we have the slightest relationship with Christ, it elevates us beyond anything that we could ever imagine. So, listen, this life might legitimately be garbage for you. Absolute garbage. The hardest thing that anyone has ever had to experience. Right? If something bad is going to happen, it's going to happen to you. Right? If someone is going to get cheated, it's going to be you. If there's someone who just bought a fresh, uh, fresh new uh, iPhone and is going to drop it without a case on it, that's you. Right? That's going to happen to you, guaranteed. But in Christ, there's so much hope for a better eternity. Now, we, can't, we can't do what Solomon did. We can't focus on everything under the sun. We were made for more than that. Our life consists of more than that. This life is not all there is. And as God's people, as His children, as people who are promised that we will be co-heirs with Christ, that we will reign and rule in heaven with Him, we have 
significant promises for our future. These are the things that we have to cling to when life gets dark, when life gets hard. So are you struggling to find hope in your despair? Is life hard for you right now? Are you struggling? Turn to the Word of God. Turn to the promises, the truth that never changes. No matter what circumstances you are going through, the greatest time of your life, the worst time of your life, God's Word never changes. His promises are always true. No matter what's going on in our life. Turn to the Word of God and also remember when you are struggling, you are loved beyond measure. You are loved beyond anything that you can possibly comprehend. God has given you so many promises for your future. And that doesn't mean that this life gets any easier for you. I'm not going to lie to you about that. Like, this isn't, you know, health, wealth, and happiness gospel here. This is not the way that it necessarily works out. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But you need to remember that beyond all of that, you are loved beyond measure. You have a promise for a future that is greater than anything that you can possibly imagine. And as you are going through the dark night of the soul, you need to cling to these things. This is our only chance for hope in this dark and dying world. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful that you are steadfast and true. That no matter what we are going through in this life, we, we can trust everything that you have ever told us. Right? If we're at the pinnacle of the world and all, suddenly we're in the depths of Sheol, Lord, I know that you are with us, that you are never changing. And that you have made promises to us that no matter what we experience in this life, the next life is going to be infinitely better. And you sent Jesus in the first advent to ensure that that is true, and now we wait for the second advent to fully realize all the beautiful promises that we see throughout your word. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here struggling with public difficulties or private difficulties, Lord, that there would be a sense of the Spirit in their life today that is significant. They can feel His presence. They can feel your love, your compassion, your mercy, your grace. Lord, if there's anybody here that is struggling, I pray that they would turn back to you. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.